Stop scrolling because today on the podcast, we're talking all about digital well-being. Okay, so if you're like me, it takes a lot to wake up in the morning and not immediately check your phone or go to sleep without those last few scrolls of social media. I would love nothing more than just to give up social media and live off grid. But unfortunately, digital is not going anywhere, so the answer can't just be to ignore it. So thankfully, I've got someone here to help us today, author of Dear Digital, We Need to Talk, Dr. Christy Goodwin. Dr. Christie is an award-winning researcher and speaker who promotes employee well-being and productivity in a digital world. Her book, Dear Digital, We Need to Talk, offers realistic, research-based microhabits to tame digital habits. And as one of Australia's digital well-being and productivity experts, she shares practical brain-based hacks to tame tech habits and the latest evidence-based strategies to decode the neurobiology of peak performance in the technological era. Dr. Christie, it's such a delight to have you on the podcast. Welcome. It is great to be here and on a, a podcast all about being clever. That appeals to me. <laughs> well, everyone always asks about what's the deal with the phone calls with clever people. And I always genuinely believe that every single person has this cleverness, whatever it is, like regardless of whether people describe themselves as clever, we've got a bit of a genius. We've got something that we can share and contribute to the world. And so for me, it's just a chance to hear a little bit about your cleverness. But before we do that, let me ask you three quick fast facts, which are my my favorite questions to ask, which are, where were you born? What was your first job? And then what do you do now? So I was born in the western suburbs of Sydney in Parramatta. I, my first job was at McDonald's, as all good Yes, thank you. Yes, off. same, same. You too. There you go. Me too. <laughs> Uh, and the third question, I have digital dementia, so I don't remember information. Your, and what do you do now? I am a digital well-being researcher, author, and speaker. So I'm obsessed with how our brains and bodies are operating in this digital world we've all found ourselves in. Oh, and you're very good at it. I've been reading your book at the moment. I was mentioning just before we started recording, I was passing through a bookshop and I, I'm a little bit of a book collector, much to my wife's disdain. And I always think, okay, these are some books that I really want to read. These are some people I'd really love to interview. And yours was in the category of both. I was like, I need to read this, but I also need to interview you at the same time. Because I found myself in a little place where I just said, help. And your book's called Dear Digital, We Need to Talk, A Guilt-Free Guide to Taming Your Tag Habits and Thriving in a Distracted World, which... Nine out of 10 of those words aptly describe my life right now. Which one doesn't? Is it the thriving? Please tell me it's not <laughs> the word that's been omitted. <laughs> no, I think when it comes to tech, I would not use the word thriving when it comes to my life. But look, I, I'm sure I'm not alone. I'm sure the experience that you have, we see a lot of people, we're living in this tech-saturated world right now. And do you find that, am I the only person out there that's just struggling with this? No, you're not. And one of the reasons I wrote the book is despite being a researcher and speaker in this space, I was struggling with the constant digital demands that were permeating my day. So you are most certainly not alone. We have, I often say, ancient paleolithic brains. We have brains that are biologically designed to go and forage and hunt and seek information. Do you remember in the good old fashioned days, we used to go to the library and borrow a book. But today in our digitally saturated world, what's happening is information is constantly being thrust at us. Alerts, notifications, reminders, you know, pings and dings have become the soundtrack of our day. And our brain, 
despite its very sophisticated nature, hasn't evolved to cope with this constant digital onslaught. So this is why so many of us are feeling overwhelmed, we're feeling distracted, feeling chronically tired and stressed. And I think in many ways, not the only reason, but in many ways, it's our very pervasive digital habits and behaviours that are the root cause of a lot of this overwhelm and distraction and stress. Uh, I feel that very deeply. And I'm going to do my best in this conversation not to turn it into a counselling session for me personally. And hopefully... (laughs) It'll be helpful for other people in the process too. I saw somebody um, share something last night and he was like, I remember those days when you were so excited to show up to the is it the Scholastic School Fair, the book fair, and you would buy two copies of a book and a picture or a poster of a Lamborghini or something like that. And I was like, I remember that. That doesn't feel that long ago that we were so excited about buying a book or we were so excited about going camping or spending some time outside. And the world that we're living in is completely different. Things have changed very quickly, haven't they? They've changed very quickly and they've changed at a rapid rate. Um, In the online world, we have something we call the the digital penetration rate, and it describes roughly how many years it takes a digital technology to penetrate to 50 million global users. So can you cast your mind back to dial-up internet? You know, the... Yes. I know the sound. It's embedded in my mind. it is, isn't it? 13 years until 50 million people adopted dial-up internet. Facebook took somewhere between two and four years. YouTube took less than two years. Angry Birds took 35 days to reach 50 million users. Pokemon Go took one to two days. ChatGPT had 100 million users in a month. And so the rapid rate of digital technologies is something that we've never experienced in our lifetime. We know that the average adult, it is estimated, is consuming around 74 gigabytes worth of data every single day. That, that is more than our ancestors consumed in a lifetime. And our brain, as I said before, our brain has not evolved. The, the part of our brain called the hippocampus, which is our brain's hard drive, think of it like the, the hard drive um, or the storage center of your brain, it has not got bigger to accommodate this extra information that's constantly coming to us. So we are struggling as a result with a, a term I use called infobesity. We're just, just drowning in too much information. You know, the Teams messages, the emails, the WhatsApp messages, the DMs, social media, news sites. Our brain isn't designed for that constant sensory stimulation. And we are living in these turbulent times. So I think it's those two things. The, the, the change is happening at rapid rates and the volume of information we are getting at the same time. I often like to describe this as almost like the digital superstorm. Oh, my gosh. I feel... All of those words that you've used felt like they just hit me between the eyes, like this digital arbitrage or onslaught that we're experiencing. I was watching the the documentary the other night, or the kind of retelling of the Tetris movie on Apple TV. That in itself is a fascinating story. But one of the things that they were saying is that that was the launch of the Game Boy. And they were saying, this has an eight kilobyte processor in it or something like that. And then you hear, you know, 79 gig of like mental processing that we're doing every single day. It's really hard to even fathom how much information we're taking in every single day, isn't it? It is. And we are consuming vast amounts professionally and personally. Our brains, as I said, haven't evolved to cope with that constant volume and that constant sensory stimulation. Our brain actually perceives any alert or notification as a potential stressor. Why? Our brain, as I said, was designed to go and get information. But when there's an alert, a vibration, a flash on our screen, our sensory system is alerted and our brain actually can't really differentiate between a Teams notification pinging us, 
and a tiger chasing us. They are both, on the surface, perceived as a potential stressor or danger. If we think about the average person's day, from the minute we wake up, often to the minute we go to sleep, we are often tethered to technology. And so we're in this constantly heightened state of arousal. Um, We are in what we often refer to as the sympathetic nervous system is really active. And when we're in this heightened state, we can't be at optimal levels of of our performance. Our productivity is compromised and most certainly our well-being is hampered because of just this constant onslaught of information. Yeah, I, I definitely can relate to the feeling of seeing a team's meeting much like a lion or a tiger's chasing me. I think a lot of people who are listening to this can probably relate to that a little bit. It reminds me, there's this great quote that I love, and I, I, I wrote about it when I was in talking about Lead the Room, and it was from Herbert Simon, who said, in an information-rich world, the wealth of information means a dearth of something else, a scarcity of whatever it is that that information consumes. And what information consumes is rather obvious. It consumes the attention of its recipients. And I just love that thought of like with a surplus of information, we end up with a deficit of attention. It's no wonder with so much information in the world around us and and so much in our day-to-day lives, why we struggle to find some sense of focus or struggle to kind of maintain our attention. And you in the book talk about this idea of micro stresses and biological buffers, which I think is a really nice framing for this conversation. Are you able to kind of tell us a little bit more about what you mean by those two kind of terms? Sure. So I think the super skill of the 21st century, a skill that will supersede our IQ, our intelligence, um, a skill that will supersede, there's been a lot of talk in recent years about our EQ, our emotional intelligence. The super skill of the 21st century, I believe, is our FQ. And yes, I have to be very careful how I say that one. (laughs) Your focus quotient. If we cannot direct, orient and control our attention and our focus, we are going to get lost as we are at the moment in this digital world that's been designed to be like a sensory smorgasbord. And so one of the reasons, or two of the reasons I should say combined, that we find it hard to pay attention and focus is because the digital world has introduced a whole lot of little micro stresses. Now, on their own, these micro stresses would be quite harmless. They'd be benign. But when we go from one micro stressor to the next, which is happening in our digital world, we don't have time to resolve the stress cycle. Now, as humans, we are biologically designed to cope with stress. Stress often gets a bit of a bad rap, and I don't think that should be the case. However, we are designed to experience short bursts of stress, and we are designed to resolve the stress cycle. So a tiger would chase us, we'd run into a cave, short burst of stress, and resolved. But today, some of the micro stresses that we're being exposed to are things like alerts and notifications, multitasking, video meetings, we've got brain scans showing us conclusively that the brain is very stressed on video meetings, video calls. We're working for long stretches of time without taking a break. So all of these little habits and behaviours that we've adopted are little micro stresses that accumulate in our day. The other part of the equation is that our tech habits, again, professionally and personally, have completely annihilated some of the biological buffers that we used to have naturally be baked into our day that helped to optimize our focus and attention. We used to get way better sleep in terms of quality and duration of sleep than what we do today. And our tech habits are one of the contributing factors there. We used to be far more physically active. You know, even our incidental walking and movement was a lot higher than it is today now that we're parked in front of our screens. Even the way that we breathe, we should sigh every five minutes, but research tells us when we're looking at our screen, our sigh rate falls off the cliff. So when we're in this heightened state, 
we find it harder to pay attention and focus. So it's the accumulation of both of these things. I think these little, in what may seem insignificant little micro stresses and the erosion of some of the, the most essential biological buffers that we used to have existing that helped us manage our focus and attention. I think that is contributing to why people are finding it harder to, to focus. Do you, do you get the sense that most of these things are not overnight transformations, right? They're not things that you go, oh, gee, my quality of sleep has just dramatically reduced overnight. But rather you look at years or even just the last couple of years, you go, oh my gosh, I didn't realize why I'm feeling so lethargic or why I'm struggling to get up in the morning. And you start to see that erosion. I think the erosion is a good word because it, it leads us to believe that this little bits over time that make this kind of cumulative impact. I totally agree. It is the building up of these little behaviors and habits. And I often say as humans, we're not that complicated. We have a, a, a biological blueprint, some basic biological constraints as humans that we cannot outperform. And we are now living in a world where the technology has been designed to disrupt, to impede, to impair some of our most basic biological needs. You know, our screens, for example, using our, our phones or our laptops or tablets, particularly smaller handheld devices, in the 60 minutes we, before we go to sleep, we know will not only delay the onset of sleep because it, it stops our body from making melatonin, we also now know that it will shrink the restorative deep and REM sleep phases of our sleep cycle. And so we may be getting the, the, the seven to nine hours of sleep that we need, but we are often not getting the volume of deep sleep and restorative sleep that we need for optimal performance. So again, it is these habits. And at the moment, I'm, I'm often describing, I think we're seeing a bit of a digital hangover from the pandemic. You know, we adopted some really unhealthy digital dependencies out of necessity. I don't want to blame anyone. You know, when we took our laptops home in, in March 2020 um, and we were told we'd work from home for a couple of weeks and then things would go back to normal. And again, both professionally and personally, our tech habits underwent mammoth changes. And I think we're still wearing some of those consequences from the sort of slippery slope that many of us started to walk down. Yeah, I definitely am still feeling the the hangover and regret of downloading TikTok during COVID. Uh, that's definitely, <laughs> I think there's a lot of people who are st currently struggling with the, the the regret of having done that. Um, but I, 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 you're right. I think the last few years we have, we've kind of taken little things that we didn't, we, we didn't realize were making such an impact and then they become embedded into your day-to-day -day habits. And then all of a sudden you start to realize, for example, like you just touched on there, not looking at your screen 60 minutes before sleep. Now, as I was reading your book, it was, it was, there's this real moment of internal chaos. Cause when you walk into my bedroom, based on the number of devices that I have plugged into my wall, it kind of looks like I'm on life support when you walk into my, into my bedroom. And I was like, honestly, one of the most simple things I can do is start to pull some of that stuff out of the bedroom. Um, but before we talk into the pragmatic stuff, which I know you're so good at, can we talk about the impact of this? And because I think there's this belief that, oh, if we don't get this right, it's going to impact performance. And it's like this idea that I'm not going to be at optimal performance. But I think it's more than that, right? It's impacting day-to-day -day well being as well. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. And I actually think there's a symbiotic relationship between performance and pro or productivity, if we want to call it that, and our well-being. Um, I, I think there's a, a really strong nexus between the two. And so depending on who I'm working with, um, some organisations, you know, driven by metrics and data and, and KPIs, so they might want to go down the performance and productivity angle. 
But there's also, I will say, a much greater awareness about the pivotal role of well-being, particularly in workplaces today. And again, I think there's an enmeshment between the two. And so I really applaud organisations who genuinely are looking at this at an organisational level. Deloitte just released um, a paper in the last couple of months where they were looking at what really does make long-term sustainable well-being practices in organisations. And they looked at, at a couple of factors. One of them were the ways that we work, the, the practices. And I'm working with a lot of forward-thinking organisations who are recognising that they have to establish digital guardrails in their organisation because at an individual level, we find this really hard to manage. We amplify this problem across teams where there hasn't been, again, at no one's fault. We haven't had the time or the opportunity to actually articulate what are our digital norms, practices and principles. Do we have cameras on or off in internal video meetings? Do we have meeting-free blocks of time? What's an acceptable internal email response rate? Do we have a communication escalation plan so that when people switch off at night, if there is a time-sensitive, urgent, critical issue, what's the one mode of communication? And we are already hearing whispers of some legislation. There is some legislation percolating at the moment around the right to disconnect. And I think we will possibly in Australia soon see legislation in this space um, if we don't have enough organisations actually putting up some of these parameters. And the parameters under the guise of optimizing well-being and performance and productivity. Oh, yes. I, the, the, that is a beautiful sound to my ears to hear the conversations that are happening around this. In Let's Talk Culture, one of the things I talk about is an expectation conversation where we have to have a really honest conversation with one another about what we expect of each other on this team. And one of those things comes out around how, we, how do we do digital as a team? How do we do online as a team? I was in a workshop recently and someone was saying, well, you know, we're talking about this idea of respect and, and someone said, well, what does respect look like to you? And someone said, well, I think respect looks like cameras on during meetings. But they, there was such a, just a way of doing things that they'd only ever known. And then someone said, well, I actually, I don't know if I, I necessarily agree with that because here's some of the reasons why I might need to have my camera off or here's some of the reasons why that. And once they had that conversation, they could realign what their expectations were of each other. And there was this less of this unspoken expectation around things. You'd see the same thing with emails on weekends. Your manager emails the team on the weekend or your team emails the manager on the weekend. And all of a sudden you go, well, they must be expecting me to respond. And because there's no explicit conversation, you end up working on your weekends and everyone's angry and frustrated, but there's not that real honest conversation and communication around that. There's not. And I use the term with teams, I hope you like this one, called expectations. I and love we it. Really, we have to take the time, as you said, through no one's fault, you know, we were sort of thrust into to remote work and now hybrid work. Very few of us have actually taken the time to to look at what, what are our, our expectations, what are our protocols, what are our standards. And I think you've identified two really key issues in teams at the moment that they're facing in terms of their, their digital guardrails. And the first one is the use of virtual slash hybrid meetings and you know, the whole use of cameras, there's so much research. Microsoft and Stanford University have been sort of world leaders in the space of video meetings and their impact on our brain and um, our focus and our well-being. And we know video calls are stressful and they're cognitively taxing. We've got some preliminary research coming out that tells us that we actually attend 
as in, oh, sorry, tune, I should say, to the salient details in a, in a meeting when it is audio only. When it is the video call, as social creatures, we are checking out our colleagues' backgrounds. We are looking at, you know, we're trying to compensate for the postage stamp view that we get so we don't see their body language and their hand gestures to get that full picture. They're socially intense. We often um, sit about 60 centimetres away from our screens. 60 centimetres is what social anthropologists reserve for what they call intimate social distance. It's reserved for lovemaking, cuddling, comforting, tackling, wrestling, and we're 60 centimetres away from a colleague or a client. So I think the video calls are certainly the, the one that a lot of teams are struggling to come up with their boundaries and protocols on. The second one, and this has been a long-term Achilles heel, I think, of for a lot of teams, it's the use of email. It just, it is a beast. It's been compounded. A lot of teams are saying, we're actually seeing sometimes a decline in email, but what has overtaken it are the collaboration tools like Teams or Slack. And so the, the use of those tools, you know, when do we use them? How do we use them? Do we put them on focus mode when we're trying to get our deep work done? Is it okay to have blocks of time? So you can get that deep focused work done. I think the teams that are making huge strides in terms of hybrid work are the teams that have taken the time to come up with those digital guardrails or those expectations. Expectations is my favorite term. I had like highlighted it in the book. I was like, yes, yes, yes. Because one of the problems, um, and this comes back to one of my favorite quotes from Tori Aletto, who said, isn't communicated as felt, what's felt is interpreted and what's interpreted is often inaccurate. When we have really honest conversations about what we expect of one another, we remove the ambiguity around some of this stuff. So when you sit there and go, hey, I've sent you an email at seven in the morning, just so you know, that's when I'm operating at my best. And that's that feels like a really good space for me. I don't expect you to reply to that. I want you to come back to me in your own time. You remove all the sense of frustration or tension or internal anxiety that you feel around all of that. Yeah. And as you said, communicating that to your colleagues, but also communicating it to your friends and family members. You know, I I've changed my voicemail. I am the first to admit I am really slack at checking my voicemails. So my voicemail says, hello, you've reached Christy Goodwin. I'm sorry, I can't take your call. I will not check my voicemails. Please send me an SMS if it is something urgent. The number of SMS I get from people saying, I love your voicemail, nothing urgent, have a great day. You know, it can be something as simple as a line in the, in the signature of your email. It can be, I'm working with some teams at the moment, and they're actually coming up with a one pager of their preferred digital communication preferences. You know, if it's urgent, ping me on Teams. Um, you know, I will respond to internal emails within a 24-hour period. Just having a somewhere on a shared drive where you can see how people prefer to communicate and collaborate can make a huge difference. I really love that. One of the things that for me can feel a little bit overwhelming at times is I feel like I'm too far down the rabbit hole of technology and it feels like it's really hard to get out of there, especially let's take something like email. I mean, email is just the bait of everybody's existence. We, we None of us love receiving 100 emails and yet we still send 100 emails to all of our friends and and family. And you do you talk about this concept in the book, which I really loved, is around declaring email bankruptcy, which I thought was just such a great phrase. Um, do you want to go unpack that a bit? As you said, uh, the biggest thing I think a lot of people are struggling with is still email. We've added to that with, you know, other collaboration tools, most certainly, but email still really is problematic, especially because we tend to use it internally 
and with our external stakeholders too. So with clients, prospective clients as well. So what I often in research tells us that we shouldn't be nibbling on our inbox. Having your inbox open all day and just jumping in and jumping out will put a huge dent in your productivity. What the research actually says is that the ideal number of times is usually between two, sometimes people say three to four times a day. Now, that may not be the case. If you are in a customer service role, if you are in a sales role, then you may not have that luxury of, of checking it intermittently. But for most knowledge workers, we're not getting paid to be responsive to emails. We're getting paid to do the deep thinking, to do that, that mentally taxing work. And we simply can't do that if we're jumping in and out of our inboxes all day. I think we need to have, again, as part of our digital guardrails, some clear parameters on what happens when we go on annual leave. Slack commissioned a study in December 2022 and, and they asked people who were anticipating their summer holidays, would they still be checking emails on their annual leave? It was somewhere in the vicinity of 72% of knowledge workers said they would still be checking emails because the thought of coming back from their annual leave to a bulging inbox was a catastrophic thought. A lot of teams are playing with rules around, do you have an out of office message that will inform people that this inbox will not be checked during the period of leave, nor will it be checked on the, the when they return and that emails will be deleted. In the book, I share an example from the head of social media at Nike and Samantha Uluru talks about how she went on a seven week sabbatical She's a leader of a global, you know, social media team. She put on her out-of-office reply explaining she would not be checking emails during her leave, nor those amassed emails would be deleted upon her return. She provided step-by-step -step instructions on how to reschedule the email if it was of critical importance. She had step-by-step -step instructions on who to contact in her, her leave. She received, I think she said, over 7,000, somewhere in that vicinity, a number of emails, not one person rescheduled the email after that seven-week period. And one of the reasons I think we have to examine why we email, I know for me, I often send somebody an email because I want to cognitively offload the information from my brain. I want to yeah. get it off, get it off, get it out. So same reason now that we send a Teams chat or a, a Slack message because we want to cognitively offload it. And so I have found often picking up the phone and having a phone call with someone reduces the ping pong snowball effect of emails in a really much more succinct and timely way. So there are things we can do, I think, to remedy and not just declare bankruptcy. <laughs> That's so profound. I, I liked the idea because one of the things you said is like, if you've got more than a couple of hundred emails in your inbox, then rather than getting so overwhelmed by it every day, you're better off just archiving all of it and just starting again, just like allow yourself that space to kind of have some breathing room again. What I like that you talked about of this, which is which is a really nice perspective shift on it, is we're often looking for ways, how do we put boundaries in place so that other people don't affect our own well-being with their tech habits, which I think is definitely, you talked all about your guardrails to put up. But it's also a really nice angle on it, which is what could I be doing to better serve the people that I work with to make sure that I'm not imposing this kind of additional weight on them. So one of the things that popped into my mind before when you were saying with your voicemail, Whenever I call somebody and they don't answer the phone, I always follow up with a text message going, hey, just so you know, it's not urgent. No rush to call me back. Here's what I wanted to call you about. Whenever you've got space, give me a call back. Because I don't want them to see a missed call on their phone and go, oh, why was Shane calling me? And does he need to talk to me right now? And do I need to call him back right now? And for me, that's just a simple way of being able to make sure that I'm not imposing additional stresses on other people. I also encourage people to do that with emails or 
Slack or Teams messages, you know, if there is a timeliness, if there is urgency, and we have to be careful of the boy who cried wolf because please recalibrate your sense of urgency and importance, that can you communicate, you know, I need a response by the end of the week or close of business on Friday or Thursday, I'd, I really need a reply. Like flagging the response rate, I think can be another really simple way. Another boundary that I think works really well that we've often forgotten is that we can turn our devices to focus mode. You know, we can choose what distractions come our way in far more um, nuanced approaches than we could ever have done in, in the past. So I encourage people to bundle or batch their notifications. So of the very few platforms where you do have notifications, and, and I often say to people, the first rule with notifications is to turn off all non-essential ones. I don't believe anybody really needs email notifications. It's the most redundant thing, a notification to tell you've got an email. Like That would just be constantly stressing us and distracting us. The second rule with notifications is you can now bundle them. So you can now specify, give me all my WhatsApp notifications between these hours or between 8 and 8.15. Give me all my team's notifications at this time. And then as part of that, we can now create what I call VIP notifications. So when you do go onto focus mode, when you're trying to get some of your deep productive work done and you don't want teams pinging you or you don't want your phone flashing with alerts and notifications, you can now opt to go into focus mode, but you can have a list of people on your VIP list. So it may be if you've got aging parents, if you've got young children in childcare or school, um, if you're working with a colleague on a really important project or you have got a client that will need some responsive information from you, they might go on your VIP list, but everybody else gets blocked. So I think there's far more that we can do in terms of putting up those guardrails than what we often think. I know what went through my head. So I guess there's a good chance it's going through the head of other people who are listening to me right now. And they go, yeah, that's good for you, but you don't know my boss, right? If I put on my do not disturb mode and they email me and I don't get back to them immediately, I'm going to be in so much trouble and this and this. There, I would suggest that there are some stories where that may be true, which is probably a much bigger conversation than maybe just a tech conversation. But is there this expectation we also place on ourselves that we have to be super responsive to everybody? We have bought into what I believe is the urgency fallacy, that this idea that in the online world tricks us because when an alert or a notification comes to us, again, potential danger, stressor, it must be urgent. We've lost the filter of, is this urgent and important? You know, the old Eisenhower matrix has, has been obliterated because now everything feels urgent and important. So I agree. I think, as you said, it's part of a, a broader conversation about that. Another thing I often get um, employees to do is if they're brave enough to have this conversation with their leaders or, or colleagues, is to talk about, or sometimes I come in and do the talking on their behalf, once we are distracted. So say we're doing some, some data analysis in a spreadsheet and it's really exhausting, mentally taxing work and we get the ping of a, a team's notification. Even if we don't open it, even if we just glance at who it was from, maybe the first couple of words or the subject, once we glance at that, we leave behind what we call a little bit of attention residue. So imagine here's a full ball of plasticine and that's your full attention on what you're doing. That little notification there, we pull off a little bit and it sits over there and then we might get another ping and we, we are gradually reducing our attention. The other thing that we know is that if we do succumb to the distraction and we open it up or, you know, we're back in the office, it's not always digital distractions. We're hearing at the moment a lot of people who are going back into the office on a certain number of days 
are finding it's talkative Tom or chatty Cathy that comes up to their desk just for a quick chat, usually at the most inopportune time. And once we are distracted, it takes the average adult 23 minutes and 15 seconds to reorient their attention. I am not saying it takes you 23 minutes to get back to the task. It doesn't. But to get back into that focus state where you were manipulating those numbers, you know, you had some really good analysis happening, it'll take you around 23 minutes. It's called the resumption lag. So if we can start to have these conversations about, you know, I'm not ignoring you. I'm not slacking off. You know, I'm not out laying in the sun and, and, and doing things that I shouldn't be doing. I might actually be doing some deep focus work and I'll get back to you. Coming up with that um, escalation plan can also give people that peace of mind. So if it really is urgent, I say to teams, a good old-fashioned phone call because there's no ambiguity about whether it was read. There's no ambiguity about whether the, the, the contents of the message were fully understood and interpreted, interpreted and what the next steps were. So I think there are things, again, that we can do to sort of take back some of that control. It's really profound. I remember talking to a, a coaching client's one, a client once and, and they were saying that their organization is just really reactive and it's just so, so fast paced. And they said, well, I can't, I can't not get back to someone because they're going to be chasing me for things. And, and the question I asked them, I said, if you were to really think through, if you were in a meeting, because they were had lots of meetings in their, in their teams and you're in a one hour meeting you're not generally responding to emails or doing anything that while you're in a meeting, right? And they said, what are the situations or circumstances that would pull you out of that meeting and say, I'm sorry, I have to leave. I have to take this call. I have to do this. I said, give me a list of the, of the scenarios in which that might happen. They said, you know what? Well, it could be a death. It could be an injury. It could be a, a family emergency, or it could be maybe one or two other things. And on one hand, they could list five things that, that couldn't wait an hour to get back. And we, we kind of got to this point where we realized, you know what? Most things... And our day-to-day calendar can wait an hour uh, or maybe even two hours, even not three hours. And it's not going to be that urgent that it can't get back to it. And so we often feel pulled into that urgency fallacy. I think this is particularly the case with distributed work. So when we all, when everybody was in the office or most of us were most of the time, it was easy, much easier, I should say, to sort of get a pulse check or a sense of productivity by, you know, if you were there, it didn't matter what you were necessarily doing on your laptop or desktop, but your mere presence was often what we called a productivity signal. When we all went home, we didn't have the traditional optics of being seen in the office. So what have we done instead? I'm calling it digital presenteeism. And it's this idea that we want to be seen to be responsive. So I started to reply instantly to the team's messages that were coming through. The email that came in at 11 o'clock, I would fire off a response and that would elicit another response and then we'd keep going. And I think this this culture of digital presenteeism is also driving this responsiveness. And again, I think often in teams, it, uh, it is often the leaders that set the digital tone of the organisation because you may have the best digital borders and boundaries and say, you know, I'm not checking emails after seven at night, you know, I'm switching off over the weekend. But when you get an email from your boss at three o'clock on Saturday afternoon and every single one of your colleagues starts replying, it is hard, really hard, if not impossible to ignore that. So again, I think that the culture that we set and those digital guardrails are just absolutely critical because digital presenteeism is rife. It really is. Yeah. And we, we had this conversation before we started hitting record where people will often ask the question, is this just like 
is this a tech addiction? Are we just addicted to our phones? And I think you have a really nice kind of perspective about that because addiction leads us to believe one thing, but what we're talking about is something quite different. Do you want to kind of maybe just touch on that just quickly? And this is a really common question I'm asked. I'm not going to skirt around the fact that I think many of us have some really unhealthy digital dependencies, some digital habits, but the word addiction is a very medically loaded word. We don't yet have consistent like clinical diagnosis of what an internet addiction is. And an internet addiction is probably different to a social media addiction, which is different to a gaming addiction, which is different to, you know, email addiction. So it's a really nuanced conversation. My concern is that, yes, I think most of us would agree, including myself at times, we've got some unhealthy digital behaviours and habits. But saying we're addicted almost abdicates our responsibility in finding sustainable, healthy habits. It's quicker for us to just be flippant and say, I'm so addicted or she's so addicted than saying, hang on, no, I want to recalibrate and form some healthy, sustainable digital habits. And that's, I think, where the rubble will hit the road. You know, um, the reality is doing and often hear people saying we're addicted. You just need to go and do a digital detox. Or you should aim for inbox zero or, you know, give up social media or cancel Netflix. You know, they're really unsustainable, unrealistic strategies. The problem is with other treatments where we have a a substance addiction or a psychological addiction, the typical form of treatment is to remove the source. So with alcohol addiction, we remove the alcohol. With drug addiction, we remove the the drugs that people are addicted to. The harsh reality is whether you love it or loathe it, we are living in 2023. Taking away technology is not really a plausible solution for most of us. So instead, we've got to find ways that that we can use technology and ways that are congruent with our human operating system, our brain and our body. So it's about saying this is how these are our biological constraints as humans. This is what we need for peak performance and well-being. Let's map how we use technology to that rather than the other way around where we're trying to just sort of keep up with the digital onslaught. I really love that frame because we often think that we've just got to eliminate things from our life. And when we struggle to eliminate it from our life because it's so deeply embedded into our society and our life in general – then we feel like a failure. We're like, well, I'm obviously, I just can't give this up because I'm just too addicted to my phone or I'm too ingrained in this particular way of being. As opposed to when I go, how do I actually just start to modify some things in my habits that allow me to get the benefits that technology brings our world? You know, imagine like, I think to, think to myself during COVID, like how often we were on FaceTime with family and I go, I can't even imagine doing this, you know, 15, 20 years ago and not being able to have that daily connection through FaceTime with our family. I go, well, I could just eliminate my phone and go, well, I'm just going, I don't need technology. And we move, you lose some of the great things that it holds. One of the things that we'll often ask people is like, what is the most economic point of entry, which is what's the thing that you can do right away that feels like it's not too much effort, but it's going to create a really good result for people because your book is so full of pragmatic habits and tips. And I I literally have this list on my notes app going, okay, I'm going to do this, 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 and this. If you could just give person that someone who's listening right now, that one accessible next step that you go, if you just do this little tweak, this is going to help you immediately start to see some of the shift that's going to create some motivation to want to do more of this. What what, what would that thing be for people? Oh, thank you. I love this approach. I, I in the book, share what I call a menu of micro habits. And the idea is that they're just small adjustments and accommodations. 
It's not about doing a radical overhaul because we all know, you know, this is why New Year's resolutions don't get much traction (laughs) because we're really crappy at making long-term significant changes. What we're far better off to do is just to make small adjustments. So this is hard to pick one, but the one that I hear from most people who've read the book or who I've worked with, the thing that has made the real difference they have found is working with what we call their ultradian rhythms. So your ultradian rhythm is, as humans, one of our biological constraints is that we go through peaks and troughs roughly every 90 minutes. So we have roughly a 90-minute sort of window where we can really optimise our performance. Whether we choose to acknowledge it or not, we will go through a little bit of a trough where our energy slumps, we find it harder to focus and pay attention for roughly 20 minutes. And then we will go back through a peak and then another trough. If we can start to work in what I call sprints, not marathons. Um, In the book, I talk about work in a digital dash. We have never as humans been designed to sit down in front of our laptop and punch out four hours of work. If you are doing that, you are working against your neurobiology. So we are better off to work in a sprint and it may not be the full 90 minutes. Each of us have our own sort of ultradian rhythm. Some people find it's closer to 60 minutes, some at 70. It's very rarely more than 120 minutes. So very few of us can sort of sit down and work for two hours without requiring a break. The trick is that we have to do something restorative during that 20-minute lull. Now, you might be listening and going, Christy, I don't have time to lay on my yoga mat for 20 minutes. And, you know, I'd lose my job. I'd never get any of my work done. That's lovely, but no, thank you. I'm not saying you have to do something restful for that entire 20 minutes. Some of that 20 minutes, I say two to 10 minutes, should be something restorative. Closing your eyes, taking the dog for a walk around the block, doing some squats. I have an Irish friend who calls it a tea and a wee break. Um, Doing something that restores you and replenishes you. Some deep breathing, sighing, closing your eyes, like really simple things that we can do. That remaining type depending on how long you took, did you take sort of the two to two to 10 minutes? The remaining 20 minutes could be spent doing some less taxing work. Cal Newport often talks about shallow work. So you're less demanding, less taxing. Maybe it's that's when you reply to emails. Maybe that's when you pick up the phone and make some calls. Maybe that's when you do some administrative tasks. But the trick, I think, is to find a, an operational cadence that works with our biology And the harsh reality is we are not designed to sit and work for long stretches of time without a break. So we are designed to work, have a break, work and have a break. We know that the the thinking part of our brain, the, the prefrontal cortex, only has a four to six hour battery life per day. So we are not designed to constantly be pumping out 14 hour days. If we're doing that, and again, I know in the financial year, big project, sometimes you've got no other option. But if that is your consistent operational cadence, you are working against the way your your HOS is designed to operate. Wow. Ah, oh, that's so, so helpful. And and that is that um concept of the diminishing returns, right? Where you you, you think if I just put more hours in, I'm gonna get more done, but your returns on that investment become significantly less as you push yourself through. I honestly feel like this conversation I could have all day and I, I need to bring it to a close and what I'd love you to do um, is I want to give you a little soapbox to stand on just for like 30 or 60 seconds. And whatever you is really firing you up right now, and don't talk to me, you can talk to everybody who's listening. What's the one thing that you want to say to everyone right now that's kind of like locked up in your bones, ready to kind of say to people, what would you, what would you say to them if you had 60 seconds? All right. I'm going to say that tech that we all use and love professionally and personally has been deliberately engineered to rob us as humans of our two most important resources, time and our attention. 
we get neither of them back and they are our most critical assets. In the book, I shared a story of a mum who picked her daughter up and her daughter turned and said to her mum, how much do you earn per hour? And the mum explained that she earned a salary and she'd have to calculate her hourly rate. She tucked her daughter into bed that night. She said, sweetheart, I figured out my hourly rate. This is what it is. Why do you ask? And she turned and she said to her mum, because I'd like to buy an hour of your time without your phone. We don't get our time and our attention back. And I am worried that our, our tech devices that we all need to use are robbing us of our time and our attention. So I want us to tame our tech habits and not be a slave to the screen. Oh my gosh, what a brilliant way to end this conversation. Thank you. Um, I, like I love it. Vent that. <laughs> Really thank you. Thank you. Oh, I think everyone needs to hear that. I needed to hear that. I was I was just sitting there taking that in for a moment. Um, what I love about your book, uh, for you if you want to get it, I'll put it in the show notes. Dear Digital, we need to talk. A guilt-free guide to taming your tech habits and thriving in a distracted world. What I love about it is that it's not just a why book. You're not going to read it and go, great, I need to do my, you know, get better at tech, and now I need to figure out how to do that. This is a hey, you already know that the problem is. <laughs> Really know what the issue is. Here's how to actually practically go about changing some of those things. And what I love most about this is you use this phrase, cut it down, don't cut it out. It's not about removing technology from your life. It's about learning how to better live with it so you can live a better quality of life, which can ultimately lead you to all kinds of things. And if performance is that thing that you want, great. If it's just a better day-to-day life is the thing that you want, this is going to be really helpful for that too. So uh, where can people best connect with you? Where do you hang out? Where's the best place to connect with you? The irony isn't lost on me that I'm talking about curtailing our digital habits. And I was like, come and have a look. But I hope that what I do share on social media is just nudging you to adopt some better micro habits. Um, my digital house is at drchristygoodwin.com. I do try and share practical, realistic strategies, up-to-date research on LinkedIn and Instagram as well. So they are places... Amazing. We'll put all of those notes and uh, in the show notes for um, this. And what I also love is at the back of your book, you've got a whole bunch of resources that people can use. Uh, you talk about it through the book. And so it's not just pragmatic tips. There's also kind of tools that people can use and look up online in the back of the book as well. So pick it up anywhere good books are sold. Dr. Christy, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. It's been such a privilege. My pleasure, Shane. Thank you. I love this conversation. That's it for another week of phone calls with clever people. Thank you so much for taking the time to invest in you by checking out the podcast. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss out on any of the episodes as they're released. And of course, I'd love to hear how this has added value for you in the reviews. Have a fantastic week. 